is that coded radio messages have been coming out of there like popcorn. Coded radio messages? Like what? It's unbelievable. Our own son. He was always such a good boy. Keeping to the basement, playing with his octopus. Hi, everybody, and welcome back once again for the IMMP podcast for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And once again, I've returned to making him watch television. And this one's a classic. I mean, it is the spooky season that we're getting into here. And, I mean, talk about something that sets the tone for the modern, you know, celebration of the Halloween and holiday season. Yeah, we're, we are doing the Halloween theme this month. We're not the first podcast to do that by any means, but I like Halloween a lot. I like Halloween more the older I get. So I couldn't let this uh, opportunity pass by because there's a lot of things on the list of stuff that I have I've set to show Ian uh, that fit this uh, this Halloween theme. I'm I'm glad we're starting with this one in that sense. I mean, this is one that I've always known about and I never actually watched any of the actual episodes. I never interacted with this. It was always tangential. Yeah, it's one of those things that it it's kind of in the culture and people who have never actually sat down and and experienced any of this media directly are still aware of it. And it's a great example of of one side of what I think of as the kind of the dichotomy or the two sides of the whole Halloween horror type of world. Because I think there are two primary ways of approaching horror and Halloween type themes. And I, I'm, I don't know if I came up with this. I probably didn't. I tend to think of them as spooky on the one hand, and scary on the other hand. That makes a lot of sense. It definitely, definitely, there's that split because spooky is uns- is is this unsettling but approachable, right? And scary is this thing that pulls you away as much as it's pulling you in, it- right? I think of scary media, scary stories as things that. That genuinely elicit some level of fear. You know, they're, they're, even if they're fictional narratives, they hit those buttons and elicit that flight or fight response that can be cathartic. And I love scary movies. I mean, The Exorcist, brilliant movie, and I love that movie. I haven't watched that in far too long. I should watch that this month. But yeah, I really can enjoy scary movies that genuinely, for the length of the movie, elicit that kind of genuine fear response. Spooky, on the other hand, I think of that as things that give you an opportunity to have fun with the idea of things being scary without being really scary themselves. I can definitely see what you're what you're talking about. So growing up, things like certain um, Scooby-Doo episodes were spooky, and I loved that. Most of the Disney Haunted Mansion type stuff was spooky. I was never genuinely frightened in Disney's Haunted Mansion, but it was fun to be around all these things that I got to pretend were scaring me. Find a way out. I mean, (laughs) it's got this overdramatic theatricality which lampoons itself into this analysis mode instead of taking itself seriously enough in that sense. It's... 
and just, properly hammy. And just a warning to you, I've I've got a couple of things in mind now for for uh, October of this year for Halloween to show you for the podcast. One of them is what we're talking about tonight, which I would put in that spooky category. Maybe its own interesting subcategory of spooky. And the other one is more on the, well, when I first saw it when I was, again, far too young, it was in the genuinely scary realm. Now I'm not quite so sure. But, but anyway, I wanted to make sure we covered both of those bases if we're going to talk about Halloween and horror type things. And I guess it's time to finally mention what it is we're going to be talking about today. For anybody who didn't figure it out already from the, uh, uh, our intro, we watched The Addams Family, the original series there in black and white. Yep, original TV series from the 1960s. And again, this was really before my time. It ran around the time I was born, give or take. But it was one of those things that was run frequently in reruns when I was a kid. So it would be usually five afternoons a week for several months. There would be the uh, the Adams Family, and then it would be replaced by some other show that was syndicated in reruns. So I watched a lot of the Adams Family when I was a kid. Haven't watched much of any of it in decades now. So it was interesting to come back to it. But it was definitely a presence when I was growing up in my, my media diet, my media landscape. For me, it's one of these things that gets referenced, and I see, like, interpretations of it constantly. But seeing the original here definitely sets, the, like, what this baseline everything is tempting to call back to is. And the thing is that the, the show might be one of the, the biggest proliferators of it, but it's not the original origin of these characters, is it? No, not by any means. It's a really an interesting... Um, it's an interesting er and to me early example of a a multimedia franchise in that way, because it started out as cartoons. A guy named Charles Adams, a cartoonist with kind of a, a creepy, macabre but funny sense of humor, did these series of cartoons. I think they ran in the New Yorker, and a lot of his cartoons had these recurring characters of this really creepy family, who were always happy and active, but they looked like an an undertaker and a, I don't know what you would call Uncle Fester, and Lurch looked like some kind of a giant tall monster, their butler. And Why did I want to say Pokemon when you asked what Walter Fester was? He's electric <laughs> type for sure, but he's this strange semi-humanoid bald thing. Yeah, I mean, so you've got all these weird, creepy horror story cast members in this family. And they're having picnics, and they're living their lives, and they're having fun, and they're being a family. Their picnics may enjoy food that ha they have to eat before it eats them, things like that. But it was this weird juxtaposition of happy family and creepy, ghoulish weirdness that really captured people. And then in the 60s, they, they created this TV series based on it. And in the cartoons... The family was never named. Some of the characters might have been named in, in dialogue captions as they spoke to one another, but the family name was never mentioned, so people just started thinking of it as the Adams family, named for the uh, the cartoonist who created them. And that, yeah. re that really does fit, because it has that, uh, that er-creation reference to it. It has that ubiquity kind of, it's, you know... They sound simultaneously plain and like they've been around for a long time, and those both fit. 
Right. It also kind of speaks to the the anonymity of cartoonists at the time, where people learned his name, but it just became subsumed into the work. And people didn't think of, oh, this is a cartoon made by the guy named Charles Adams. And once the name was applied, most people just thought, oh, this is the Adams family. That's who this is. And it was it was interesting to see. You go back to some of those cartoons, there was a lot of interesting, concise storytelling in these one-panel cartoons. But there was definitely a lot that they had to do to translate that into uh, the half-hour sitcom TV format, because where they did have to tell more of a story and, and bring these characters more to life, so to speak. And that's one thing I was not prepared for. This is extremely sitcom-y. And... Nothing I'd seen before prepared me, actually, for how formulaic sitcom it can be. And that's the thing. All of the spooky stuff was one thing. Anyone who's listened to the podcast would know I don't do well with awkward situational comedy. And so the scariest part for me was actually the sitcom element. The Adams Family was fine. It's the sitcom that got me. Oh, that's interesting. I never really thought of this as a sitcom that had a lot of that humor of embarrassment kind of thing that you see in uh, in uh, yeah, I Love Lucy, that you see in The Munsters, which is another old sitcom that's compared to The Addams Family in in many instances, although I think they're worlds apart in terms of, of, of interest and quality. But uh, but yeah, it's it always seemed to me that the the Addams Family was a different, maybe older kind of sitcom in that so much of it was, yeah, there was a a 25-minute story, but it was really just a framework on which to hang gags, gags of the type that could have shown up in the Charles Adams cartoons, and many of them did. A lot more of what bothered me was in the first episode or two that we watched, those those early season one episodes where they were trying to do setup, and there was a lot more of the awkward misunderstanding from the normal people's side that wouldn't get resolved swiftly enough because they had to be able to get through to show every character. And that kind of tension of the, if someone would just say blank, it would be moving on and we could introduce them with something other than this same leverage point is what was getting me. Yeah, I guess you got a point there. Those first couple of episodes uh, before it really hit its stride in that sense were a little bit more of that traditional sitcom sort of awkward comedy. Kind of once you got used to them being in the neighborhood, you were fine. In that sense, it, it, the the that awkwardness dissipated after that point. Let's so let's talk a little bit about that setup, about the the setting and the characters, and then maybe talk about some of the stories that we watched, some of the episodes we watched, uh, as examples of what we thought about the show. So the Adams family, they appear to be in a generic city or suburban kind of early 60s sort of generic America. But they live in this giant, weird, haunted-looking house. And you know, their neighbors comment that, oh, they, we thought that house was haunted. Some of them didn't even know people lived there. And the Adams family are exactly the kind of family you would expect to be living in that house. Gomez, the patriarch of this family, played by Sean Astin, in some ways, he is the, has the most difference from the way the character was portrayed in the cartoons. Uh, in the cartoons, Gomez was short, and I don't know what I'm, he, he was kind of chubby, or at least round or blocky looking. He was not 
tall and he wasn't thin the way John Aston is. But even with that, John Aston captures that character extremely well. He, he, he doesn't get a lot of scenes. He isn't what I would call the most prevalent character in every episode, but he definitely has so much presence every episode he's in. He is the almost mo- he's almost the most normal of them in some weird way. But that means that the ways in which he is very much this spooky twist on things show up even more when he drops into this like kind of smirking I've got an idea look it is so much more terrifying yes and when he just so gleefully destroys something there is such something so much more viscerally oh goodness about the whole event oh you know the the description of um of Gomez Adams from the cartoons would be in the cartoons he's much more of a Peter Lorre character Oh, that makes a lot of not, sense. Not Peter Lorre on a submarine, like in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. More Peter Lorre as the creepy guy sneaking around. And yet, he's not sneaky and creepy. He's just happy and weird. A, a bit a bit Maltese Falcon in that sense? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, yeah. And then there is um, Morticia Adams, Gomez's wife, played by Carolyn Jones. And she is the tall, thin, wearing this form-fitting black dress that is somewhere between what you'd expect a widow to be wearing and a dramatic femme fatale or a vampire type character if you have to choose a person who a character who i would call the uh the main point of focus she's usually it there's a lot more stories that seem to have a her as the person the camera follows in that sense compared to other stuff it'll it'll veer off into other stuff but she's usually the one that comes back to Right, and story-wise, she really is the center of this family, the anchor of this family, so she's often the hub around which the rest of the story spins. And Carolyn jo- Jones does a great uh, job with that. She can be that anchor to the stories, and still, Morticia has her own brand of weirdness and just kind of compelling, strange interest to the character. Feeding her plants, or her, her, her meat-eating plants, and yeah. like tending to them with such care and delighted that they're all like poisonous killer things. Yeah, that's her great hobby is her plants and her conservatory full of, of deadly things. And her roses, she loves, grow- oh, excuse me, thorns. She loves growing thorns. They always get these smelly rose flower things on top, but she cuts those off so she can display the thorns. <laughs> and then there's Uncle Fester. I don't know, do we ever... I guess he must be... um Gomez's uh, brother, because I think we hear him referred to as an, an Adams at some point. Yeah, I think he is. But he's played by Jackie Coogan, most famous, uh, or apart from this, as a, a child actor playing with, uh, uh, with um, Charlie Chaplin. And he's playing Uncle Fester, who's this bizarre, bald character, always wears these kind of shapeless, I don't know, monk's robe kind of thing. Yeah, he he's very much monks like because he's got this this heavy looking robe. He's got this shaved head, and he's got this kind of form of of presence. But he's always this exuberant character with like electrical abilities. Right, he's the most exuberant and crazy in some ways, and you can kind of see now that I think about it, a little bit of a family resemblance in personality between Fester and Gomez, even if they have uh, approached it, uh, used that personality in different ways. And yeah, he's electrical. You stick a light bulb in his mouth, it lights up. 
a special effect there or a practical effect, they're happy to demonstrate at every single opportunity in the show. Yeah, put a pin in that. Uh, there's a comment I need to make later on about, <laughs> about Uncle Fester and light bulbs. And um, uh, there's Grandmama. She doesn't get a lot, but when she's in, she's used well. Right. She's kind of a generic crone witch story, uh, story uh, um, um, fortune teller kind of character. She is either mixing potions or throwing knives or using her crystal ball to try to tell people's future. Usually things like, when are they going to die? And there are the two kids, Wednesday and Pugsley. Let's, let's start with Pugsley there. Pugsley looks like he's not supposed to belong. And then he acts, and you're, oh no, he's part of this family, because he is this, this strange, wild child of a character. Yeah, in some ways, Pugsley takes after his Uncle Fester a great deal, in that he's, he's a chubby kid, and he has his own kind of solitary interests, but in his case, they tend not to be electrical, but explosive. He loves blowing things up. And then we get Wednesday Adams. Right. A character who I have seen the most reference to and is from my previous interactions the most popular but the thing is the version i have ever seen people reference and like is not really matching the version in this show no you've seen the christina ricci version from the movies if i'm not mistaken yeah there's much more like quiet dour kind of stoic character in this little girl Meanwhile, in the show, she is just a little girl, vibrant with her interests, which are like raising spiders and brewing poisons. It's like, this character somehow had some of the the energy drained out of her to create a different type of character. Right. The more popular version of uh, of Wednesday is kind of the goth girl who creeps people out, knows it, and loves it, and revels in it. Yeah. Whereas Wednesday Adams in the show... This little eight-year-old girl, like you said, she's full of life, she's peppy and happy, and she just likes to raise spiders and have the head chopped off her doll so it resembles Marie Antoinette. And, you know, just normal little girl things. Wednesday Adams in the show, I could see being a, a kid who would ask for a pony. Now, the pony, whether or not it arrives alive, and if it's <laughs> supposed to be mounted up on the wall, is a whole separate thing. But she's a little girl who, for, for, a, for Christmas, might ask for a pony compared to the version elsewhere, which might not even mention that because it wouldn't be in brand in that sense. And then there is Lurch, the butler. You're right. The best character. Lurch is excellent. There's this, uh, so like most requests. <laughs> and the... The very, very powerful voice bits they give him. Now, Lurch is is enormously tall, gaunt, thin. I wouldn't say that he's a Frankenstein monster kind of character. He's just oddly tall and gaunt and bleached white hair and sal and this gray skin. And the the clothes they've put him in make him look taller and ganglier. I'd say that he's a little bit more book Frankenstein's monster in terms of the fact that I could imagine Lurch, when he's not on call, sitting off to the side reading philosophy textbooks and not talking for a long while reading. There is something much more classically about that, not modern 
Boltneck interpretation version. That's a great point. He is, he, we have plenty of evidence that he is learned. He is a, an accomplished musician, a master at playing their, uh, their 16th century harpsichord, beautiful harpsichordist. So yeah, Lurch is multi-talented. He doesn't speak very much. But when he does speak, it is impressive because he is played by Ted Cassidy. And uh, Ted Cassidy, actually, he's one of these crossovers. He appeared, so to speak, in another TV series that we have uh, covered on the IWMP. Oh, I didn't recognize which one. As Mrs. Darling Wife, your mom pointed out, he did the intro narration for every episode of The Incredible Hulk, starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. Oh, goodness. Think of that, that cool, deep voice explaining the plight of Dr. David Banner every single week. So he must let the world go on thinking that he, too, is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Oh, that's him. That's him. That's a, that's a great voice. That is excellently done. And he does not use it much. Uh, Lurch is a man of very few words, but as I say, when he uses it, it is impressive. Oh yeah, you 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 take the doorknob with you, and it falls out out enough times that you might accidentally. He would chase you across the Arctic, get that back, put it back in the door, and come in. So we've got this family, this extended family of really odd people. We forgot a member. Oh yes, we did. You gotta hand it to him. It's <laughs> thing thing. Somehow, very expressive character, mused in a very fun way. The fact that in the show, we don't see this disembodied hand scurrying around, it's just him popping up out of the box to do stuff, I like better. Yeah. There, there are things that tried, there, there are shows that try to explain thing. There are media that tries to explain thing, and it's better if you don't know what's at the other end of that. Right. All we see of thing in the TV show is around the house, there are these little boxes, nicely carved and sometimes ornate wooden boxes, and a hand, they'll open from the inside, and a what looks like a human hand will pop out and often communicate with Morse code or sign language or pick up the phone receiver to help someone answer the phone and generally be helpful. But that's all we ever see is this hand. And we never see that the hand is disembodied. It's not, in the, the TV show, it's not a beast with five fingers kind of thing. That's another movie we might want to watch. But this hand can appear in all these different boxes all over the house, including the mailbox. So the mailman comes to the house. The mailbox opened. Things, thing reaches out, takes the mail, pulls it back into the mailbox. Next thing you know... Thing is emerging again, just a hand emerging from a box in the uh, the family room, the living room, and handing the mail to a morticia. So, either thing is like teleporting through subspace from box to box, or somehow he is this weird tentacled Lovecraftian thing with a million human hands and can pass things from one place to another all over the house. I don't know. They never tell us, and I don't want to know. I love the fact that it is just bizarre and allowed to be bizarre. I am agreeing. Between Thing and Lurch, they are the two best because Lurch is so relatable and Thing is so unknowable. <laughs> and those two make an excellent combo therein. That's right. 
Yeah, and we do occasionally hear, see and hear talk of other members of the family. Occasionally we see a cousin It, who's about four feet tall and just hair head to toe, except for the derby hat and the sunglasses. And which, are, which are there so people don't recognize him. That's right, and otherwise he'd be swamped with autograph hounds. But for the most part, we have the characters that we just laid out, and they're living in this weird, big, haunted-looking house. Well, the doors open by themselves yeah. and such, so it might be. Might be haunted. And they are a very happy family. They have their problems, otherwise we wouldn't have any stories. Their problems are often based upon a little misunderstanding of some kind, or something coming in to disturb their tranquility. But they are happy people, and that's what's fun about it. They're not sullen and depressed or depressing and looking to creep other people out. They're living their lives the way they think their lives should be led, and they love one another. They are very kind and generous and give everybody else in the world the benefit of the doubt when they interact with them and help them. And it's, in some ways, they are are model citizens. They're just so weird that people come at them with these preconceived notions of their being scary and probably dangerous. And yes, they have pastimes and things that are dangerous. You mentioned uh, Morticia's carnivorous and poisonous uh, conservatory. Pugsley's uh, pet is a, an octopus that sometimes gets loose. Right. And, uh, and they, they do a lot with explosives. Um, Gomez's biggest hobby is his model train set, and he always sets it up so that there are uh, there are trains on the bridge when he dynamites the bridge. But we almost never see anybody get hurt. And um, yeah, they most, I, most of the time the only person that is in the proverbial line of fire, sometimes literally, is usually Uncle Fester, and he seems pretty impervious to most things, which adds to his odd mystique of like, what are you? Right, he does seem kind of uh, indestructible in that sense, and he uh, he seems to enjoy what other people would find rather disturbing, like lying on uh, on beds of nails and and uh, and the like. So yeah, he's again he's he's pursuing his bliss. He's happy. So it's um, it's it's odd. I keep coming up with the word odd, trying to think about the Adams family, but uh, but that's the best word that fits. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of how the first episode goes, because that's the one that introduces everybody. And that one is, uh, it's, I believe it's the school board coming in because they've got to, because uh, they haven't said the, sent the kids to school. Right. And the kids are like eight and 11 or something like that. And they've never been to school. So a truant officer comes to talk to the, uh, the family and then the, uh, somebody from the school board. And eventually they have to send the kids to school. So yeah, this is one in which it was very much based on the Adams family in their strange little world in which they're delighted and happy, having to interact with the world that they don't have all that much to do with, although they're not antagonistic to it. And um, and yeah, a lot of the comedy is the the goofy, mugging, overdone reactions of the normals to the Adams family, and the Adams family being bewildered by this reaction. And that one, like it, it spends plenty of its time setting stuff up, but there's so much of it which is. Which is just repeated to to lay in what they're setting up that it became it became rough at places, especially because I'm just I'm just surprised that the 
They're homeschooled. Was never said. In some ways, there's something said in the time there, the fact that you can't diffuse it with that. Yeah, I don't know. Was that a thing in uh, 1964, 1965? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was a thing, but was it enough of a thing you could use it in a sitcom? I don't know. But uh, but yeah, that would be the answer. Well, they're homeschooled. And you know, we had plenty of evidence that kids could read and write. You know, the kids were not, were not ignorant or neglected. They had just never really been out of their house. They had been uh, taught pretty well by their family, apparently. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of socialization outside their family, and they, the parents had noticed that you know, they seemed to want to go out and play with other children more. But yeah, that, the, that, that first one about school, that was kind of predictable. There was a bit of a conflict though, between the Adamses and the outside world in that one, in that the kids came back from their, uh, their first day of school terribly, terribly upset because you know, the teacher in school had read them this horrible, scary, disturbing story about this person in armor killing a defenseless dragon, and who would do that to a nice dragon? <laughs> and so, yeah, you get a little bit of humor from, uh, from the differing expectations there. And the second episode was similar to that, in that it was Pugsley getting a little, a little nor- too normal, in that he wanted to be a Boy Scout and go camping and play football and do all these things, and his parents were a little disturbed about these you know, bizarre interests. That's actually the one that bothered me the most. Because on the other ones, the Adams family is is more just indifferent to the fact that they are different. They are are neutral parties, but they become directly antagonistic to the rest of the societal aspects that their son takes interest in. There was something so so much more self-separating at that point that it didn't feel the same. And I didn't like that. That one had some big problems to it, I feel. But they're wanting to set up that contrast line, but by putting that in our characters, it kind of taints those characters as being self-contrasting in that sense. Right. And uh, I think that in those first few episodes, the first part of the first season, there were more instances of the writers being a little bit lazy and just going for the kind of bizarro world story conflicts. Like, the Adamses love things everybody thinks are, else or thinks are weird and scary, and therefore they must hate everything that the rest of the world thinks are fun and normal. And later on, when the writing, I believe, gets better, it's, well, this is what we think is fun and normal. Glad that you've got something you think is fun and normal. I can't imagine why you would want to do something bizarre like play tennis, but okay. A, a a later Adams family that episode's Adams family to use the tennis there would say oh you're playing tennis what is this later Adams family would play tennis with a hand grenade right and find it fine and that's a big difference right if they were going to do an episode about Pugsley wanting to join the Boy Scouts I would have wanted a story about Gomez saying oh that sounds terrific son I'm going to become a scoutmaster. And I want to see how Gomez Adams leads a scout troop. That would be fun and interesting as he's trying to teach all these kids and share with them the things he think makes a strong and, and prepared young man. <laughs> go, into the, go into the jungle and you know, har- harvest snake venom. 
and then run into a pack of cannibals. But it turns out one of them is Gomez's old buddy from college. So it's all okay at the end. And the other Scoutmaster dragged along is terrified and grabs the other kids and runs. And that would be a fine episode. All right, today, kids, we're going to learn about snake bites. No, no, no. Snake will never bite you if you do that. You've got to get really close and agitate him. There you go. That's a great snake bite. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much they, more they could do when they have that integration of the Adamses with the, the rest of the world. Again, from the Adams' point of view, which is a little bit oblivious to the fact that they're strange. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that episode where it's, you know... There's something wrong with Pugsley is the not the best episode. It has its issues, but the fact that they kind of fix that later on is promising. A little better is the the Pugsley centered episode one or two later than that with Gorgo the gorilla. Oh goodness, Gorgo the gorilla! There's a gorilla supposed to be the the, the killer gorilla, this dangerous animal, as it's billed by the circus that he is a an attraction in. And the circus is owned by a friend of Gomez, so when Pugsley wants to go to the circus to see the gorilla, his uh, you know, dad, Gomez, is all for it. And the gorilla follows them home and starts learning to do all these things at home. A little bit to the consternation of Lurch, because Lurch thinks this uh, gorilla is honing in on his job. But the gorilla learns to do laundry and doesn't learn to serve tea very well. He's a little awkward at that. Yeah, he's having trouble with that. But he, he I think he's like answering the door and getting and like uh, welcoming people in, doing the laundry and such. And he's he's getting into this. And definitely that's the that's one of the episodes that made me like Lurch because Lurch's reactions of just the like the oh no, you ain't taking my job. That's it. Cassidy is able to convey such emotion and so many uh, thoughts with so little to work with. It's brilliant. Just, 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 just different tones of <laughs> set just right. And it's like, you've said paragraphs, my friend. <laughs> Definitely uh, Mrs. Darling wife's favorite character in the, the Adams family, but you know, uh, Lurch is her favorite character in the Adams family. Uh, Eeyore is her favorite Winnie the Pooh character. She's, the gloomy, uh, quieter characters are always her favorites. I That probably says something about me. I have no idea. But, <laughs> but yeah, I do think that the writing in the Adams Family gets more interesting. The more they really learn to trust their premise and not go for the easy jokes. So later in the first season and into the second season, there were two seasons, I believe, it gets, I think, much more interesting. It's still, a lot of it is just setups for cartoonish as in one panel cartoon setups for for cartoonish gags, but they they let the characters be the characters more, and it gets more fun, I think. Oh yeah, and they, they we watched a few episodes from later on, and they seemed to get a better balance of who they needed in what scene. Some of those early ones, they wanted to make sure everyone was there and everyone had a moment, but that meant that I got really annoyed with Uncle Fester fast because he had nothing to contribute. But then there's later episodes where he is important to the plot and had a reason to be there. And when you're not overusing him, he's a fine character in that sense. Yeah, I remember that when I was a kid watching these, Uncle Fester was a favorite character, probably just because it was easy to, 
to understand. He was this weird guy who stuck light bulbs in his mouth and had a, a big, loud voice when he was on screen. But now, as I watch these again, a little bit of Uncle Fester goes a long way. Yeah. And they could use him less. But yeah, I mean, the whole setup there is definitely about the interactions. This is a a reaction pool to interact with parts of the rest of society and to bounce an idea off of one and onto the other and onto the other so that when it comes back around to where it started, it is three layers of distorted before it arrives at its home base. And in that sense, it reveals itself to be a sitcom in that you can have entire storylines driven by one person misunderstanding another person and not simply asking for clarification. So, for example, there's a story in which the uh, apparently the, the stock market has has, uh, has had a big downturn and Morticia and Fester overhear Gomez talking to his broker and they think that the conversation is indicating Gomez has lost all of their money and that they're, the, the Gomez is broke. And they take it upon themselves to try to figure out ways to make money that they can give to Gomez to help keep the family going without wanting to ask him because they think it'll embarrass him if they come out and ask him. And that that's also an interesting one because it kind of explains how they've got their income and such because between that and another episode that we watched, it explains that the Adams family is like this small investment firm in the bazaar. Like these these businesses all over that they own majority in this large and odd stock portfolio, which is so out there, it doesn't get affected by problems in the market. They are, from this small hub, fueling weird all these other places in the world. Right. His holdings, apparently he's a, he's a, a, a accidental genius investor of some kind, I guess. They, he owns corporations, and I don't know if these are things that have been in the, in the Adams family for generations or something. But he owns these corporations all over the world in these bizarre industries, if you want to call them that. Apparently, money is not a problem. They've got millions, and they can just live in this big house and not have to do anything else. And and other episodes, we see, like, they're getting letters internationally from all over because he has these connections. And then they're making radio telecommunications to places. And, like, they are, are international enterprises. Of all sorts. Yeah, I love the list of uh, of industries that Adams owns that they, they give at one point. They actually have little film clips here. He has a mango plantation. He has a crocodile farm. He has a tapioca mine at the top of Mount Everest. The transportation's a little tricky. They need a good manager to help figure out how to get the tapioca down from the top of Mount Everest. And I wasn't aware that tapioca was product of mining, but apparently it is, and I believe it. I've had tapioca. <laughs> this is the sort of like, but they're everywhere, and it all seems to constantly work. There is this like baseline luck to the entire Adams family system that allows them to have this spookiness because these things that should be dangerous don't. And it's not just on the the creepy, like, I like poisons kind of side. It's the, how is this making you money? Kind of same wavelength of luck going on. In watching this again, it struck me 
How much like Gomez Adams is J.R. Bob Dobbs of the Church of the Subgenius? Oh, we're going on down a whole tangent here. In the lore of the Church of the Subgenius, Bob Dobbs is a salesman, but he has all these business interests. He is exuberant. He's absolutely clueless. But whatever he wants to happen just happens to be what's going to happen. And he walks out and makes millions by accident every other day. That's that, very, you put a pipe ex- in Gomez's mouth and he's Bob Dobbs. That is extremely Gomez Adams. And it kind of scares me what a Gomez Adams in the age of faster communication media would be. Because a, a Gomez Adams who can, who can like check Google is a terrifying thought in some senses. It would, but I, I think we might be saved by the fact that the Adams family was kind of adrift in time, in a sense. Here it is in the middle of the 1960s. I don't remember, again, not in any of the episodes we've watched this week at least, I don't know if we ever see that they have a television. I don't think we ever hear them listening to a, a radio, not counting the the shortwave radio that Pugsley gets to communicate all over the world. They take the newspaper and they get mail from friends and relatives. But um, I don't know that the Adams family would get the internet. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I, I yeah. The idea that maybe you get like a moment in where it's like, look what I figured out how to do. And Uncle Fester like sticks a pair of cords cords like on his neck and suddenly uh grandma's uh, uh crystal ball starts making dial-up noises maybe maybe <laughs> that might be the limit but yeah i can i can understand and see that well grandmama could um could have a whole new career in like online fortune telling i could see that happening <laughs> uh, look at them they're all negative oh yeah <laughs> but yeah they were kind of um they were kind of isolated from the world in a way that maybe they couldn't be today, or maybe they would have to work harder to be today. But once we once you've got that set up, it definitely kind of forms what the stories could be. They are, I was describing them as this reactor group before. You can just then put the Adams family group with a situation and play it out. Now, how well it plays out is based on how that one was written and who they wanted to focus on as the, the members of the family responding to it. But it's all this this outside force comes in and gets bounced around and walks out each time to the episodes. And that's that's where they they power this this mo- this scene engine is what I almost want to call it. This you know right. and this that, bit engine. That's a respect in which the one about um them thinking that uh that Gomez has lost all their money. It was kind of a bottle show in some ways, in that except for some phone conversations with the broker, it was all the Adamses interacting with one another based upon misunderstandings. Most of them, as you say, there's some external agency that drives the story, be it the school board. Um, I guess, I don't know if you could call the Boy Scouts an external agency in that respect in that second one, but maybe not. But then there's the, um, you know, the gorilla and the circus owner and the ladies who come to tea. They kind of drive that story with the gorilla. There's the, um, 
the insurance company who is involved in the the other one what we saw that touched on the Adams finances where they had they as you do they accidentally set their stuffed polar bear on fire with a flamethrower and they filed a claim with their home, uh, homeowners insurance company who weren't very happy about all this and then their interactions with the insurance company became the engine for the story there's the episode where a a federal operative and the mailman try to sneak in to figure out what's coming out from these radio signals of the house and it's them trying to find ways to sneak in and getting and sometimes literally bounced around to the house before being <laughs> ejected and that's the engine for these you know little bits all across the building yeah that was another one where they were they invested a lot in just letting us see a lot of the house, letting us see little tiny bits with a lot of the characters just to sort of continue to establish it. Because even that was fairly early in that uh, first season, I think. And um, and it was another example. There are a few examples that we encountered, like with some of the radio stuff and uh, some of the talk about where Adams has all these different business interests. It is, uh, in sadly, in some ways, a product of its time. Lots of just thoughtless racism and things and it's that's all, always hard and disappointing to see uh and you know i'm not gonna make any excuses for it it's just not right and so it's um, I'm, I'm sorry to see it in there but yeah but i think that um it's one of these as i think i i don't know if i alluded to this before it's one of those shows where the more comfortable they get with their own premise the more they have fun with what the premise suggests so we also have some stories that we didn't get to see yet this week with lurch falling in love <laughs> and or lurch becoming a teen pop idol because he's such a good musician and uh and i think those are also examples of the fact that lurch became an unexpected favorite but they stopped, or they, they, they decreased how much they went for the easy scenario, the easy joke, and really started to tell stories about these characters, which is so much more interesting. You know, they had two seasons of this on, uh, on TV. Uh, they probably could have told some more stories about that. And, of course, um, as we've talked about, there are other versions of the Adams Family out there. So that kind of leads into our regular questions of revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Well, there's another one first. Oh, yeah. Good point. Binge or no binge? Binge or no binge for the Adams Family. What do you think? I'm going to actually say a no binge. I'm going to say selectively watch a couple of episodes. But I'm not sure you got to binge this one. In some ways, once you've got a few episodes so that you understand who the characters are, you can understand what the stories will be maybe that means you want to watch more but i'm not in my mind getting a clear idea that watching all of them is going to it's going to be more of this but i'm not going to say outright that it's the thing to go see in that sense i'm going to say it's a dip your toe in and if you're interested in seeing more of them go for it but don't outright think you're going to sit down and watch all of it at once now i'm it's interesting. I am going to say binge for considerations that are very similar to what you just described in that, you know, not every episode is a gem. The series overall is worthwhile and a lot of fun. So I would recommend binge because, for one thing, I enjoy this show more 
when I really get into that mood, when I kind of sink into that atmosphere, I become a member of the Adams family and just have fun with being in that environment, having that sense of humor, being what's rolling. And I think that because of some of the, 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 the flaws in the early episodes, I'd say binge. Watch those early episodes. Um, allow them to establish the characters in the setting. Get through those and into the better stories, and sink into this atmosphere as you do so. So I think you'll you would if if unless it is just completely disinteresting. I think the way to enjoy the Adams family is to binge it. Okay. Yeah, we are definitely coming to a similar point about what we think of the show, but just different approaches to right how to build that up. Is it selective viewing sections or is it immersion to get a full picture uh, yeah I, I can i can definitely understand you on that right are you gonna sip or are you gonna down the yard and i'm thinking yeah just go for it okay yeah so yeah if you're looking for something to do on halloween uh you know turn the lights down get a a, a uh glass of something that's smoking and frothing and hopefully not quite poisonous and uh, enjoy the adams family so that's one of our questions binge or no binge we had a split decision on that so as you said, the other question is, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Hmm. And that's the tricky thing, because there's been a lot of reboot already. Right. We really can't answer that question the way we normally do, because, like you say, it's been done, and it's being done as we speak. There's a new one coming out right now, and it's, it's constantly being revived like that. and Not revived, but rebooted in that sense. It's started over, I think, each time from what I'm understanding. Yeah, I believe that you would say that these the different versions of the Adams family are reboots. And there's another older version of the Adams family that I think is worth mentioning. And that is uh there's the the old cartoons of course. There's the uh the TV show we just watched. But then there is the Adams family in Scooby-Doo. What? There are Scooby-Doo episodes from when I was a kid. In which the Adams family appear, and it's an Adams family that really is a Hanna Barbera animated version of the original Charles Adams cartoon characters, with the squat little guys Gomez and all this. And okay. I thought those were a lot of fun. They really appealed to me when I was a kid watching Scooby Doo, and they were one of the first times I was aware of. Oh, this is the same characters. The same kind of setting, but it's someone else doing a different take on the same characters and story types. And oh. that, that made an impression because it was, you know, well, the Flintstones are the Flintstones and they are the only Flintstones. Scooby-Doo is Scooby-Doo. They're the only Scooby-Doo. And it's, oh, wait a minute. These people talking to Scooby-Doo and friends, I've seen them elsewhere, but they looked different because they were live actors in black and white. And yet they're the same characters. That's interesting. Okay. That definitely gives another group to be able to think about this. Mm -hmm. My response is that, yeah, reboot. But make a careful decision when you're rebooting then, because otherwise let them rest in peace and they'll like that. I think that there's a lot of, as we were describing there, the versions of like Wednesday Adams have gotten, have, have changed over time in a way. And the versions of some of these other characters get reinterpreted in that. And there's always reinterpretation in it. 
but I get worried that you're just compounding a change on a change instead of thinking about what the way the characters, uh, like, what you can do with the characters as they were. Are you repeating yourself or are you iterating? And I'm worried that there's just repetition. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying, like, I am happy to see that there's new versions of this, but I just don't want it to be done without thought. I would agree. I, if if someone were going to reboot this, I would be most interested in a reboot that really took a careful look at what worked in this original TV series, this original, this, this oldest TV series, and gave us a, an updated version of those characters, as opposed to a whole new interpretation of the Charles Adams cartoon characters, which is kind of what I think of the the 90s movies as being, uh, which is fine. That's valid. I didn't care for those movies as much as I liked the cartoons and many parts of the original, this old TV series. But I'd be interested in something with a similar sensibility to the old TV series, with the Adams as being exuberant and loving and happy and generous and not realizing how weird they are in the eyes of the rest of the world. As opposed to knowing and kind of relishing the fact that they are weird in the eyes of the rest of the world. In some ways, that also gives me one other idea, which is a revive of the original, but play off the fact that the Adams family spooky instead of scary style has had its rise in popularity. And the fact that there is a more people out there that like that. And that there is also this communication that, as we were just describing, the Adams family might not touch, but a revive of the Adams family, older, the kids are grown up, and they're like, finally, like, looking out their window a little more and realizing, what's going on in the world? And they mm. respond to that being the thing coming in. Then it resolves of the, wait a minute. There's also just a bunch more people like us than we thought there were, and I can talk with them. And mm. that kind of optimistic we're all part of a network ending could very much work with a revive taking these characters into the now in that sense. The Adams family, but but, but the Adams family in the context of the find the others, find your tribe kind of sensibility. I kind of like that idea. I'm I'm concerned, I'm, I, I would worry, that it would tend to fall into parody in the way that, like, the Brady Bunch movies recent, that were made recently did, the way the Dark Shadows movie with Johnny Depp did, and that you've when you've got the Addams Family, who are kind of be, stuck being the Addams Family, interacting more with the rest of the world, it's an engine for parody. But it wouldn't have to be. And in the hands of somebody really careful and skillful and who likes the material, it could be a really interesting story. I like that idea. Yeah. So, yeah, revive or or reboot, but really thoughtfully. And there's a new movie coming out. I have no idea what kind of um, approach this movie takes. It may be great. We should probably see it at some point. Um, I'm not going to have my hopes up too high, but, you know... Who knows? Maybe we'll get lucky and it'll be the kind of new Adams family that we want. And there were other uh, versions of the Adams family in between. Um, I remember there was like a another TV series in the 
70s. It was more of a variety gag kind of show. I think it was called The Addams Family Funhouse. I remember that being like a summer filler show for a little while. I think there was something else between that Addams Family Funhouse and the 1990s movies, not counting the Scooby-Doo stuff, but I don't remember what it was. I think there was something else on TV for at least a little while, but oh, it's an example of how these characters have, uh, have continued to be interesting to people. The, the new movie definitely looks like it pulls more from the the cartoon style in some ways, but it's using things like the, the modern interpretation of Wednesday Adams and uh, a Gomez that's somewhere in between the two variations. It's also using the the thing that walks around instead of just staying in his box. So eh, oh, there's, there's a little bit of A and a little bit of B in there. So Yeah, I thought the TV thing, even though it was for, it was easy to film, it was weirdly Lovecraftian. I, I, I always liked that. It was so inexplicable. There, there's, it's not quite full-on fridge horror, but there's just definitely a bunch of fridge, what, questioning in terms of that, like, after you've watched it, you start to wonder, how did that work? And you could just fall down that rabbit hole forever. There is at least one website out there that is obsessively detailed about the uh, the details of every episode and character in this, and they will point out for each episode things like, oh, in this episode, in this scene, Thing is a left hand rather than a right hand, the way we see him in 97% of the scenes. And oh, when, when, when Lurch is writing a letter in this scene, he's using his left hand, even though four episodes earlier we see him writing with his right hand. It's like, thank you. I'm glad you like the show. Man, that's a lot of detail. D- does he count as ambidextrous then? Is he omnidextrous? Yeah, I guess. I it- guess that's what it is. Omni- yeah. Yeah. How many hands does he have, and how many of them can he use? I don't know. I love the fact that we don't know. But I guess I do know that uh, that probably wraps it up for this episode of the IWMP podcast. Thanks for joining us, as always, and uh, we'll be back in a few weeks with, uh, with more things that I've subjected Ian to. In the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter at, at itemcrafting, as well as as item crafting on most places like Twitch and YouTube. And you can find me at the website matthewfporter.com, or you can find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. And you can find the podcast itself at the website immproject.com, and there you can find all of our past episodes, links to some t-shirts we've got for sale, uh, contact information if you want to reach out to us, tell us what you think of the show, give us suggestions for future shows. We will also have a link to, we've talked about this before, but it's finally going live, our Discord, where you can find um, uh, you can find us, You can uh, we can chat about the show, you can chat with one another, and also you'll find a link to our Patreon, and there are channels on the Discord that are for, uh, for Patreon supporters, and going forward, we're going to have more material, including some new audio feeds for uh, Patreon members, so keep an eye out for more information about those. There's a room specifically for you to be able to talk with uh, Matt, and I'm not allowed in there, so you guys can talk about whatever shows you I might be subjected to later, and I won't get to know until it's actually happening. Yeah, so Ian does not get advance notice anymore of what we're going to be watching, but if you're in that channel on uh, on Discord through our uh, Patreon, you will find out, and you can uh, you can watch ahead of time, avoid spoilers. 
So thanks, everybody. We really appreciate everybody visiting the site, everybody downloading the podcast. We look forward to uh, talking with you more. And uh, like I say, we'll be back soon with uh, more stuff for you to listen to. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.